Cordy. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Our guest today for this extra special additional episode is someone very special to me. After being born in the Commonwealth country of Fiji, he travelled the world, arriving in the UK in the 1960s to live in the city of Liverpool, just when the Beatles and other famous bands were getting into full swing. He went on to live in Spain, run a magazine, bars, restaurants, and now almost 80 is not resting yet, writing children's books when he's not looking after his grandchildren. He gives a fascinating insight into the South Pacific and what it was like to grow up under British colonial rule. Despite growing up in a house made of bamboo in what some people would call poverty, it was a happy childhood for the kids whose playground was the lush fields of the sugarcane plantation, the mango trees, the winding river where they swam as their mums washed their clothes, and of course the beautiful Fijian beaches. There were sad times too, and it's quite an emotional interview, I have to say, although there's lots of laughter as well amongst a few tears. It's a fascinating story, so let's give it a proper introduction. Christopher Tepeshwi Nand grew up in Fiji as an Indian Fijian, the grandchild of the indentured labour system which saw three million Indians displaced around the world under colonial British rule. He grew up in a house made of bamboo, was taken away from home aged just six to be educated by Catholic missionaries and grew up to be champion boxer of Fiji. His move to Liverpool in the early 60s was timely for a 21-year-old music fan, just as the Beatles were taking over. He's very special to me. A big welcome to my dad, Chris Nand. Shall we start with introducing who you are? You're my dad. Um, your name is Chris Nand. But that's not your actual real name, was it? Your first name was Tepeshwi? Well, when I was born, I had a Hindu name. My mum gave me this name called Tepeshwi. Means the Persian means a saint, you know. At the age of six, the missionaries came and uh, they took the children in to a boarding school. At six, I was baptized and given this name, Christopher. But you still have Tepeshwi as a middle name. Uh, it's my middle name, yeah, yeah. So. Do you feel like Christopher now, or if someone called Tepeshwi, would you turn around? <laughs> as a matter of fact, yes, because it's a unique name. I've never in my life had anybody called the Peshwi. So where did she get it from? I, I don't know. It's one of these re- religious people who go into the Himalayas to pray. They give their life to God and that sort of thing. That's a nice name actually, a nice <laughs> meaning. She obviously knew, everyone who meets you says you're a nice, calming person. <laughs> I mean, I know different that you've been a boxer and everything, but uh, people say that you've got this calming aura. Maybe it's Well, as you go older, I wasn't always like that. As you grow older, you mellow, you know. So now, I think there's no point being aggressive or... In my younger days, you know, I used to like a scrap and I'd go in the street in Fiji, we had nothing else to do. <laughs> we had no TV. So at night you went out and you had a bit of a scrap with, you know, a fight or whatever. But you got involved in boxing professionally, but we'll get onto that in a minute. I think what might be interesting to some people is that you were born in Fiji but you're of 100% Indian blood. And this is because of something called the indentured labour system. Right, yeah, right. Which was essentially something akin to slave labour, that the British took about 3 million Indians, it turns out, in the end, from India and distributed them in various colonies around the world and used them for whatever labour they needed. In Fiji, it was the 
sugar plantation. So these were your, it was your grandparents, was it, that came my, over? My grandparents came from India. My maternal and paternal grandparents came from India. My maternal grandfather, he was 12. Uh, he was 14, and my grandmother was 12. They went to the, uh, the office in Calcutta where they were recruiting people, and uh, my grandfather did. He was t telling me a story when he, he did ask the officer where Fiji was. And he said, oh, it's only a day's travel from, from here, we'll be in Fiji. But 90 days later, they arrived in Fiji. Several people had died on the way, and eventually they had to build their houses, clear the forest, grow sugarcane, and this is how the Indians came to, to live in Fiji. And it's been well documented now that there was a lot of great hardship for them. There were a lot of, a lot of people died, there were rapes, murders, mm -hmm. and the Landowner, who, who, who was in charge? Was it the British or and the Australians? Uh, it was a, a sugar refining company called Colonial Sugar Refining Company. They were exporting sugar from Fiji. What else did your grandparents tell you about that time? Do you know where they came from in India? Again, going back to my maternal grandfather, they came from uh, Fajabad, Ayodhya, and uh, that's all I knew. But the DNA that we had that proved different. That said that uh, 80, 74 percent of, what was it, 80, uh, sorry. It was the DNA test that you recently had done indicated, I think that was 6 percent Melanesian, yeah. which is from the South Pacific, which yeah. is really interesting because you are born in the South Pacific with no South Pacific blood. No. But I think what it indicates, and my very basic research on Google, and I would love to know more about this if anyone knows, is that um, a bit like the British have about 6 percent Scandinavian DNA right, because right. of the the Vikings and people coming over from yeah. northern Europe people in southern India especially have Melanesian DNA from people coming up from the South Pacific Islands right. well that was puzzling because 80% I think of uh, my DNA was in South India which I never knew that at all and about 10% from East India I had no idea. I always thought I came, you know, we originated from north. People came from all over India and ended up in Fiji. Yes. So they were from, they were mixing all their castes. They were yeah, mixing. the caste, the caste system was abandoned then, because the caste system in India, which still exists today, that was all thrown out of the window, because people mix their intermarriages and all that, and this is the way, you know, it all happened. So they had this incredible hardship. Do you know from your paternal grandparents what their story was? I was very little. I was only about maybe four years old when I, my father told me, I saw this old man. He was dressed in his uh, Indian, in Indian outfit. And uh, my, my father said, this is your grandfather. That's all I know. So the, your grandparents have settled in Fiji. They had a really hard time, but after, like everyone, going through the indentured labor system, working in the sugar cane, plantations and then after that they were everyone was given a lease of land. Uh, yes they had to lease the land and grow sugarcane so my grandparents they, they leased land and uh, we were brought up on a, on a sugarcane plantation. What, describe to me what that was like. Uh, well childhood days it was amazing we had lots of cousins and it was really good I enjoyed my life on the farm we had animals we had 
cows, horses. My grandchildren asked me now about it, so I talk about it. We had the river to swim in, food was plentiful, you know. It was a good life, really enjoyed it. There was no poverty, even though we ate the same sort of food every day that we grew in the farm, rice, corn. But we were happy, you know. We had our own water supply from the river. So life was really good. The houses were made from bamboo, and uh, we didn't know any difference. So we lived in this village. All the houses were made of thatch roof and bamboo uh, floor. Everybody, you know, all my family lived like that, all my uncles and aunties, so we didn't know any different. This is the way life was. And I remember saying to me, you didn't have shoes until you were seven years old. Yeah, that's a a good question, yeah. No one had shoes. We used to go on the bus with no shoes. Uh, I had shoes, sandals, when I was about 14. They were my first shoes, yeah. Your first shoes were when you were 14? Yeah. And this is, is this because of lack of money or this is just what everyone looked like? Well, it was lack of money, I suppose. We, you know, we just had enough money to, to get by. Like I said, we, when I went to school, you know, nobody in the school had shoes. That's the way it was. We accepted all that. But you used to walk for miles a day. When you first started going to school with your big brothers, you used to walk yeah. for miles, didn't you? I think we walked about four miles there and back. How many siblings do you ha- did you have at this point? Altogether, my mum had 11 children. Some died at birth, but some of my brothers and sisters were my half-brothers and sisters because my mum was married before, and her husband died when she had three children, so she remarried. Well, in those days, it wasn't a a re... what do you call it? Uh, My mum was only very young when she had three children, and... um, the village elders, this is, a very, is an Indian culture. A widow is classed as untouchable in those days. Nobody will want to remarry or marry a, a widow. So the village elders got together and got my dad, who was the younger brother of her first husband, and they got them together. And that's when my elder brother was born, Thomas. Well, his name was Ambika Nand. When we went to boarding school, we were all baptized and our names were, we had Christian names then. I want to get onto that in a minute because that's quite a heartfelt moment, I think, when you were taken away to a Catholic boarding school for the first time. But tell me about your pet bull because there's a lovely story about your pet bull on the farm that when I was a child I always used to love to hear. Well, we had lots of animals, like I said before. And uh, I remember this bull being born. We all watched it being born. And in the morning I, I started to, I went to the little baby calf and we touched it, my mom and dad, everybody. We got used to playing with this bull all the time. As it grew, it began to follow us. I was only maybe about 12, and the bull used to follow me. So everywhere I went, the bull, you know, in the farm, the bull came. Even when I went on a horse, the bull used to follow me. We were riding uh, bareback on horses. Yeah, bareback on horses, yeah. We had no saddle or anything. When I left for boarding school, then the bull, my mom used to say, tell me the story, the bull used to still put his head down in the house oh. and look. Looking for you? Uh, yeah. Because oh, he used to try and follow you in the house? Well, it, it came up to the door, yeah. A lovely black, a shiny black coat in that really lovely bull, yeah. Anyway, it's a long story. It's a nice story, though. So your mother lost some children, I remember. Yeah, she lost uh, a brother and sister before me. They were twins. They died after six days. It makes me wonder how I survived because it was in primitive conditions. We had no running water, sanitary, everything was uh, really 
very primitive. So when the children were born, we, there were no proper midwives, aunties, whoever, they helped out. And little cords were cut by a pair of scissors or razor blade or whatever. And when I look back to see where I was born, it makes me wonder how I survived. Yeah? So I was really lucky to survive. I've been into that field where you were born, next to the mango tree. Is that the, the one we went to? Is that the one you grew up? I yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's the place I was born, yeah. Yes, and we, the same mango tree that yeah. your house was next to was still there. The yeah, mango still tree there, yeah. played yeah. with, the yeah, river we, that you used to jump in. Yeah, you went to see it, yeah, you and Marcus. Fiji, I mean, quite, there's quite a lot of poverty in, in Fiji still, and I think people don't realise that. It's a very, it's a place of contrast, you know, there's, there's the... Ten thousand pound a night resorts and beautiful resorts, but there's also quite a lot of poverty, and there has been quite a lot of political unrest. Although luckily that seems to be have been in a period of stability for a while. Yeah. So what was it like as a child there? Because you're living in a tropical climate. Yeah. So yeah. it's beautiful and beautiful and green, but it's beautiful and green for a reason. There's a lot of rain, right. and the weather can be very unstable. You told me a lovely story about going to the shops for your mum in a hurricane? Well, it was starting of a hurricane in the morning. Uh, hurricane warnings were on the radio and we were told to stay in, don't go out. But my mom needed something from the shop, so I went. But coming back, coming back, well, I was walking against the wind going, but coming back, I almost flew back. The wind was behind me. So one of those daredevil things that I wouldn't do now, but it was one of those things I had to do. I, I don't know why what made me do it. So. I... What about the tidal wave? Wasn't there a tidal wave once as well? Uh, there was a tidal wave when I worked in the city, yes. Fortunately, only one or two people had died. Where I, I was working at that time, there was a river next to it, and the, tide, the brunt of the tidal wave was, went through the river, and I... Where I worked, it was safe. So next day when I when we went back to work, everything was all right. So what was the time when you were sheltering in the only brick building in the village? Was that the hurricane? Uh, that was a hurricane in 1953, I think. All the hurricane was quite strong. All the houses in the village, all the corrugated roof, metal roof blew away our house, house as well. And we are sheltering in a one brick house in the, in, the, in, in the village. But I think we were there about 10 minutes when the strong winds came and blew the roof away. And so you're, you're sheltering in the building and the roof blew away? Yeah. That must have been terrifying. We saw the, <laughs> we saw the roof lifted, as a matter of fact, yeah. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, it was terrifying, but uh, fortunately it didn't last long. So after a while we were all right. So we're talking, so you're born in 1939. Were there any signs of the war that was still going on? Well, they're just starting, actually, in, in Europe. I remember when I was about four, the Fijian village that was close to us, about the indigenous people, I used to hear them crying. And later I was told that uh, there were some bodies coming back to the village from uh, Singapore, where the Fijian military was. Actually, know what happened in Europe. I had no idea till I went to school and started to read. So the indigenous Fijians were in the British Army, I'm guessing? Uh, yes, indigenous people. Even now, today, I think Fiji is the only country where they have Fijians in the SAS. There are quite a few there, yeah. So what age were you when you were taken to boarding school? Uh, it was just after my fifth birthday when the missionaries came. They came to the village. I remember my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, 
getting them to sit behind some trees or something. We had uh, lots of palm trees around the house and mango trees. And next minute there were, I remember my grandfather, uh, yeah, the missionaries were welcomed in the village. A prize goat was slaughtered. They had goat curry and rice. And before I realized I was... I know, it's upsetting. <laughs> upsetting for me too. I've got a five-year-old, so to think of them being taken away. Oh. <laughs> it's a nice record to have for the boys. Yeah, before I realised I was in the in the jeep leaving for... We haven't got on to the really sad bits yet. <laughs> uh, leaving for boarding school, which was about 150 miles from home. So that's where I spent 10 years of my life. That must have been devastating, leaving. I mean, I know you're upset about it now. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> leaving your village um, and everything. It was the best thing for you, though. Yes. Leaving your mum and dad is hard at that age. My brother was there before me at the boarding school, so it was comforting, you know. In a way. In, in, a, way, in a way, in a way. <laughs> in a way, only I say that because I know that, you know, there was maybe, you've defended this in a, in a way that you've said that that was the culture, but he wasn't always very nice to you, was he? I think um, the elder brothers tend to bully, you know. Not now, they, I'm talking about the olden days. I was bullied, yeah, I was bullied in school. And uh, being uh, a Hindu culture, we're not, we're not supposed to argue with our elders. We're not supposed to fight back or whatever. So I just had to take it now. Persevere with it. That's the way it was. The, you're being educated at the school, which is in a little village called Bar, which the very... Not the yeah, you've been there, you've been to my school. Yeah, we went there together and it was incredible and they still had a record in the office of... Yeah. Uh, we couldn't see your name, could we? But we could see the name of your brother and yeah. your classmates. We could, yeah, I wonder why, because I was there for 10 years. Well, I imagine that keeping records mm -hmm. isn't wasn't their strong point back yeah. in, what are we talking, it's the 1940s. Yeah, in 1946. 1946 in, in Fiji. But we did, the, the school is still there, looks yeah. more or less exactly the same. You took yes. me down the back, told me, oh, this is where we live, these are the shower uh, cubicles. The shower, yeah. So you're being educated and living with Irish Catholic nuns and mm, priests. Right. What were the nuns like? Well, some of the nuns were really very, very friendly. They really looked after us well. Well, one... Uh, two nuns that were quite, uh, the head nun, she ran the place with an iron fist. We were beaten up quite a lot. So that's the part of growing up, I suppose. And not really, you, Dad. Not everyone uh, gets beaten up by nuns. You, you call it character building now. In the olden days, everybody got hit, you know what I mean? You can't smack children now, but in those days we did. Yeah, but by nuns. <laughs> well, you read about uh, nuns in Ireland. Worst things happen in Ireland. People were, you know, see the films now. Uh, it was tough, but it gave me education, which I'm grateful for. And they taught you how to box. The priests taught you how well, to box. Well, only because I was bullied in school. The priest, Irish missionaries there were, he taught me how, one of the priests, he taught me how to box. So When it came to leaving school, you were, what, 14 years old? I, I was 14. I had a chance to to go to, pass my exams to go to a college, St. Xavier's College, which is quite famous in Fiji. And my parents couldn't afford the fees, so I had to drop out and start work. But you, at one point were you thinking about, or somebody suggested you were going to become a priest? Yes, I forgot that part of the story. But all the children in our boarding school, we, we were more or less brainwashed to be, the only way, but redemption was to, to become a priest. 
Honan. They were, the nuns had planned to send me to Ireland to study and become a priest and then return back to Fiji, which didn't happen, obviously. Why didn't you want to become a priest? Well, <laughs> at first the idea was good. I thought I'll travel, but by the time I was 14, I, was, I started to box. I was boxing, and uh, I had no I had no inclination to, to go to Ireland and become a priest. Oh, just before we get on to your boxing career, I'm going to make you cry again now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Jez. But it's a lovely record to have for our family, but also I think this is a fascinating part of history that people don't know about. And it's British history, you know, we are responsible for taking the we <laughs> one half of me is responsible mm. for taking you know and, and disrupting the lifestyle and creating Indian Fijians as they are now known um, but on when once you'd finished school you went back to the village for a while right. before you went to live in the city and just to explain that the the culture was still very, very Indian the the women were made were, you know were the, the homemakers and the cook cooks and the cleaners and yeah, the, yeah. the men are going off and earning their living and there's still a, a very strong culture there was still a very strong culture uh, there probably is a little bit of arranged marriage yes. um and sometimes that works for people and, and sometimes it doesn't yeah. you know it's a, a controversial point for, for people over here in the uk but i know there are many successful incidences of it now so i'm, I'm going to upset you because i know this story so i'm going to ask you about your sister <laughs> sorry <laughs> It's a shame because it's we a... had this all on um, on camera when mm-hmm. we went to Fiji together, I yeah. think twice, and all those tapes were stolen once on a train from Liverpool to London. Yeah. <laughs> those well, my sisters, uh, my three sisters' marriage were arranged. They're very happily married. They had children. But my sister, younger sister, I think she was only 15, when my father had arranged a wedding marriage with an older man, which at that time... I was 17. I didn't realize what was happening. I was too involved in my own life. I was boxing and training and planning to leave Fiji. I had no idea what was going on behind the scene. So one morning I left home to go to work. And um, midday someone came on the bike uh, running over to me and told me that my sister had committed suicide. So I rushed home and uh, there she was. I just saw her. And she'd hung herself in the well. Yes. So you then had this horrible, unimaginably horrible trip to hospital with your sister that you told me about. Well, what happened, my father was digging a well because the river that was next to the home was polluted. So my father was digging a well for fresh water. And uh, that's where there was a, a piece of uh, wood over over the well where she hung herself. So next minute, when, uh, when I arrived home, I saw I saw her lying on the. <laughs> Sorry, are you okay telling it? Yes, yeah. it's, it's a good t- record to have. Yeah, we'll get on to the happiest stuff in a yeah, I saw her lying under, under, under a blanket. My mum very upset, and we were all crying. And next minute we heard the police siren. The police jeeps stopped and came along. And they had to take, the, take her body to the general hospital for post-mortem. And they wanted somebody to come, but my father couldn't leave my body there with me.
and we went to the hospital and where they did post-mortem and then I had to find a vehicle to take us back. So at that age it's very hard to uh, so I found somebody who took us back to, to the village and uh, then she was buried, all the family members came and that was the, you know. But you had to carry her, didn't you? Uh, only to the burial ground, yeah, we all had to carry her. And did anything change in your family after that? No, uh, 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 unfortunately a lot of Indian girls in Fiji at that time were committing suicide because of the culture. They were, they were getting forced into, bamboozled into getting married to older men. Uh, it happened a lot in England today. There's a lot of uh, arranged marriages you always read about. Daughters being murdered and people still do it. So in Fiji, pe uh, people have gone, in the city, people have gone quite modern now. They meet the girls and later on they're married. Mm, they call it a love marriage or arranged marriage, you know, so the culture has changed quite a lot now. And I have to say that we, although we're talking about lots of sad things, that's it, the sad things are over, is that you came from a very loving, wonderful, happy oh, family. Oh, lovely, lovely family. My mum was a saint, really. She loved it. You know, she's so good to us. I miss her now. So you go off to Suva, which is the capital of Fiji. Now, I've been to Fiji a couple of times, and Suva is still this very colonial-looking capital with these beautiful old buildings, and it's very hot and oppressive and scented, and there's a market. It's a very small capital, but it's beautiful and tropical and exotic and I can't imagine what it'd be like in the 50s when you went to live there. Well when I go back to Fiji now it's just like uh, it's just like going back into time about 50 years. Things hasn't changed. The roads are the same. Traffic lights. Uh, no there, there were no traffic lights when I lived there yeah. Uh, what do you call it? Lampposts along the uh, along the roadside. They're all the same so it seems like that I've gone back into time and uh, it's different, it's calm. The indigenous people and the Indians, they get on very well at the moment. They do have a military coup now and again, but eventually they make up. Yeah, there hasn't been one for quite a while. And no. hopefully, I, I know there used to be quite a lot of inequality for Indian people as they weren't necessarily seen as equal. But I think speaking to certainly some members of our family over there now, as things are, are good now which is, is uh, things are good at the moment uh, but a, a lot of uh, a lot of my my family my nephews and nieces they left Fiji now they live in Australia or New Zealand yeah there's been a huge brain drain because there wasn't the jobs for the yeah. young people and people have, have, have unfortunately yeah. well you met them in Australia and New Zealand they're all fortunately quite affluent now everyone's you know. done really well I mean I think there's like in any family there's people from all scales of background but I do remember the very first time I went to Fiji and we couldn't afford to go when when we were younger because it's four flights to literally the other side of the world you can't yeah. go any further than Fiji without coming back and yeah. um, so I didn't go until I was an adult and I went yeah. on my own with my then boyfriend David now my husband and the very first time because I grew up in England and Spain, and I never met anyone brown skin that I was related to. It was only you. Yeah. So the very first time I met a relative of yours yeah. in Fiji was incredible. 
And I remember sitting in this lovely hotel in Suva waiting to meet Ben, my cousin, um, your brother's son. And I was smiling at everyone who came through the door because I had no idea what he really looked like. But then to meet Ben and to see him looking like you, yeah. and, you know, and he does look a lot like you and a lot, a lot like his dad, your, yeah. your brother who died in the 1980s. And to see him was incredible. And I've grown up on these stories that you've told us about yeah. poverty and no shoes and yeah. everything. Ben picked us up in his brand new Range Rover, took us to his factory on the way and said, <laughs> this is my factory. I was like, oh, this is what I was expecting. That night we were having dinner in this most beautiful floating restaurant in Suva Harbour, sitting next to the Prime Minister of yeah. Fiji. Amazing. Yeah. And the uh, and a very, very well known television journalist next door. And then Ben insisted on paying, you know, he got his gold cards out and I thought, yeah. Oh, this is not what I was expecting at all. Yeah. Uh, but it's nice it's nice to see that they they've done yeah. well. Yeah. And they're happy. Um so you became a boxer. Instead of becoming a priest, you became a boxer and you became champion boxer of Fiji. In boarding school we were always boxing each other so the uh, sorted the bullies out in the end so this is why I was boxing fortunately the priest taught me how to box and eventually I had to box one of the bullies and I, I beat him up quite badly really and then when I went to live in Suva I went to a, a boxing club that was run by the lightweight champion of Fiji a guy called Daniel Nathan he had just lost the light weight championship of the South Seas to a Tongan guy. So re rematch was arranged not in Suva but in Tonga in the city of in the town of Nakualofa. It's not a city, it's just a small place. And I was to accompany him because I was one of the lightweight uh, contenders for his title. We couldn't fight because he was my best friend. So off we go to Tonga in a hurricane conditions. The boat normally takes about two days to get there, but it took us three and a half days. And we couldn't walk on the ship. The hurricane was that bad. We were throwing up and everything. And when we arrived in Tonga, we were both very, very weak and whatever. But after a while, Tongan manager met us. We went to, he had a restaurant, so we lived there in his house. We ate at the restaurant, we trained, and after a while we were fit. And we won our both fights, first fights. And the second fight, we won as well. And by this time, one day, we were training in, training boxing in, in, in our club. Not a club like Boxing Club in London, but old weights and primitive conditions. We were training and suddenly some people came in the gym and the Tongans all fell on their knees. I thought, who is this guy? And I was told he was the crown prince of Tonga. George Topo, somebody, I can't remember his name, I have to Google it. One of the guys said, carry on sparring. So I was sparring with my lightweight champion friend, Daniel Nathan, we were sparring. So I really went, because the prince was watching, I really went toe to toe with him and he was all bleeding and everything. When the prince went away, he was very angry with me. He said, let's sort this out in the ring. You know, I'm, I'm going to kill you in the ring and all that. So he was my best friend. So we fell out. The next minute, my manager arranged a fight with me, and a 15-round fight at the local rugby ground, built for the lightweight championship of Fiji. So I went in. I had a very good manager. He said, he told me to, to box him, not to fight him, because this guy was a, he was a fighter. He was like a bull in a china shop. He came after you. from. So the fight time, uh, day, he... The bell went and he came after me, guns blazing. And my manager said to him, to me, to just box him. So I boxed him and boxed him and I won the fight on points. So my hand was lifted 
as a lightweight champion of Fiji. He stormed after the ring, he took the belt, everything, and he went, swearing and whatever. And next day he took the boat and came to Fiji. And I was left there on, on my own. I had another fight uh, with the lightweight champion of Tonga. I won that on points. And then when I came to Fiji, I challenged this guy for the, for the title in Fiji, but it didn't happen. I beat him in Tonga. It wasn't recognized by the Boxing Board of Control because the fight was held in Tonga and it should have been held in, in Fiji in front of the Boxing Board of Control. So I tried to fight this guy again, but it was too late. I, had, I was getting ready to come to uh, go to New Zealand. And later, months later, my uh, cousin wrote to me and said the title was vacant for about 18 months or so before somebody else fought for the title. Two stories I want to ask you about before we leave Fiji. Mm. Um, well, first of all, is in Tonga. Now, you, met, you were taken to the palace to meet Right, me. right. So yeah. tell me about going to the palace in Tonga. Uh, we were invited to uh, to meet the prince. The day, the morning of the the invitation to the palace, our manager said to us that when you enter the palace, you have to wear a piece of mat around your waist. I had a suit on, but on top of my suit, I had to wear a piece of mat. Th that was the Tongan culture. Like, almost like a skirt. Skirt, yeah. So as we arrived at the gates of the palace, we were given this piece of mat to wear. A little boy matters. We followed him to the palace. Outside the palace, they had a veranda. Like a, he knocked on the veranda like waking a baby, you know. And next minute, a giant-looking guy came. He asked us to follow him. So we went inside the palace in the study, and we waited there for a while until the prince came. And we shook his hands. Drinks arrived. We, you know, not beer. The the Methodists they don't drink at all. So. We had fruit juice, pineapple juice or something. But fortunately, while we were there, we met an Indian guy who, he, he was known as, he was, the, he was the queen's cook. His name was Billy. They called him Billy India because he was Billy. He's an Indian guy. So he invited us to his house where he laid on a full banquet, Indian food and rice and goat curry. As I was leaving, as we were leaving the palace, we saw a pool. And I asked the guy, the guide, is this a royal pool? He said, no, 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 this pool belongs to the, the tortoise. Tortoise? As we were walking past, we saw this tortoise, huge tortoise. He took us to the tortoise, and he started telling the story that this tortoise was given to the kingdom of Tonga by Captain Cook 200 years ago. And I thought, wow, because they do live for a long time, yeah. So I think his name is... Tui Malaya or something like that. I have to Google. I should have been Shall ready I'll for that. Do, I'll do it now. Let's have a look. Yeah, Tui Malila. Yeah. Malila? Yeah. Right. Uh, so this tortoise was called Tui Malila. And he, he has survived about 200 years. Years later, when I was living in England, I saw a newspaper cutting somewhere that uh, the turtle has died. Not natural death. It was um, kicked by a horse somewhere. Right, I, I just looked it up and it's actually Tui Malila, 1777 yeah. to 19th of May, 1965. Right, right, right. It was right. a tortoise that Captain James Cook was traditionally said to have given to the royal family of Tonga. Mm -hmm. It's the longest living tortoise which a, whose age has been verified. That's incredible that so. you met a tortoise that was hatched <laughs> in 1777. I, 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 I was fortunate enough yeah, to, to, to see this tortoise, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yes, upon his Captain Cook's royal visit to Tonga in July 
77. That's yeah. incredible. Um, so just before we leave Fiji, I want to talk about your dad because this is a before you you were hatching plans. Sorry about the hatching yeah. tortoise pun. Um, you were hatching plans to leave Fiji and travel the world and go to India because uh, sorry to to and go to England. One reason, one main reason. Well, well obviously you you feel you're British. You live in the Commonwealth, and I'm guessing why did you want to go to England? That was the only place we could. We, we were. Fiji, part of the Commonwealth. So some of my friends have gone to America because they have relatives there and they sponsored them. And um, so the only place I could go was England. I thought I'll go to England and that's why I came to England. And you met a man who told you that you could go and stay with his family. You met a Scouser in Fiji. Well, I met this guy in Fiji when I used to work for an engineering company called Bish Limited. I worked there and the foreman there was from Birkenhead. So we, we became friends and he used to come and watch me box and all that. And uh, I used to get invited to his house in Suva. We were really good friends. So when I came to li live in New Zealand, he had already moved to New Zealand. So I met him again in New Zealand. I looked for him and we met him again. And when I was coming to England, he gave me stuff to bring for his mom and dad, who lived in just outside Liverpool. So this is how I took the, the train from London to Liverpool, and I lived there for 20 years. But didn't he give you something ridiculous, like exact directions to get to their house? Right, directions, yeah. That was amazing. He, he told me to get off the train at uh, Lime Street, he said, walk over. I've got my plans. I got off at Lime Street. I looked at my plan. He said, walk over, look for Central Station. So I went to Central Station, right down the steps, took the train there. And he said, when you come out on the other side, it's come out at Rock Ferry Station and go up the steps. So I'm still looking at my plan. I went up the steps. He said, get the number 10 bus from there. So... I saw the number 10, got on the bus, and he told me to get off at a place called New Ferry. And just across the road is this road where his mom and dad lived, at number 4 Woodward Road. So it worked out exactly the same. I got the bus, I went there, I went to the house, knocked on the door, his mom and dad came to greet me, and I stayed there for a while. He took you in and said, come and stay. Yeah, yes. That's, that, that's incredible. I yeah. love that story. Yeah. But, uh, slightly before, going backtracking a little bit. So you arrived, you decide to travel the world and eventually end up in England. That's your plan. Right, right. But your first stop was New Zealand. Now, as far as I recall, you arrived there with no money and nowhere to stay. Tell me the story about the Catholic lady. I was planning to leave Fiji. We had no money. I was in boxing. I was getting very little money. It was not enough to, to travel. So my mum, she pawned, <laughs> she pawned her jewellery. She had some jewellery, some bangles or whatever. And my elder brother, he pawned his some musical instruments to make up my fare from Fiji to New Zealand. But I still needed another 30 pounds, which I didn't have. But fortunately, I had met a man before my travels. He said he will be help me out with my bond. So we got on the on our flight at Dandy Airport. Is this the first time you've been on a plane? Yes. By the time we arrived in Auckland, 
he had a lot to drink already. He was inebriated. So by the time we arrived at immigration, he was too drunk to sponsor me. The immigration officers, I heard them talking. They looked at my passport, and I heard the immigration officer say to his junior partner that we might have to send him back to Fiji. So I was really scared. But eventually they came up to me, and saw this drunk guy with me. And I said, he's my sponsor, but I'm afraid he's, he's drunk. So fortunately, the immigration officer, he said, okay, come back with him. Monday morning. When he's sobered up. When he's sobered up. But we'll keep your passport here because, you know, you might do a runner. So I went to Auckland. Fortunately, the bus from the airport to Auckland was a free ride airport bus. So we arrived in Auckland and we went to a cafe. By the time we arrived there, he had disappeared. So I had nowhere to go. I had my suitcase, I had nowhere to go. I'm standing in the middle of Auckland Main Street. The biggest city, the biggest city I've ever seen. So I began to ask people where, you know, where to, anywhere I could find a bed and breakfast or whatever. I had no money anyway. How so old were you? I was 21, just 21. So I kept on walking and walking. I came to a, a street called Ponsonby Road. There were bed and breakfast places, but nobody uh, actually, you know, <laughs> I had no money. So I said, I'll pay, pay you as soon as I find a job, but nobody was interested. Eventually, I saw a place that had lots of statues outside, Virgin Mary, crucifix and all that. So I went up the steps and I knocked on the door and a lady came, I think she was Irish. I told her my story. I said, I don't have any money, but as soon as I find a job, I'll pay you. And she looked at me and she said, what religion are you, son? I said, I'm Catholic. She said, okay. She said, come in. So I went in, she showed me a room, she gave me a nice bowl of stew. And uh, Monday morning, she took me back to immigration and she signed my guarantor and I was fine. And she also found me a job. I was working, earning a lot of money. I was earning, I was earning 45 pounds a week, which was a lot of money because in Fiji, I was only getting two pounds a week. So I managed to save my fare from there to England. Was it something awful like packing meat? And you're not the biggest meat eater in the no, world. No, no, no. I, I went, uh, she told me where to go for a job. So I went to this abattoir. I didn't even know what an abattoir was. And the personnel officer interviewed me. I said, can you shoot animals? I said, no. <laughs> so eventually he gave me a job in a freezer, packing meat, lifting uh, boxes of meat. And oh, the one thing you were was strong. So I was working with a lot of Maoris there, made some friends, and I stayed there for four months. Fortunately, I paid my fare to England. After four months, I was on my way to England. You, you Did you go to England with some friends? There was a group of you? Yeah, there were Fijians, yeah, or Fiji Indians, yeah. So what year are we talking, 1960? 1961. 61, so you're getting the boat from New Zealand to England in 1961. What yeah. was that like? That was an amazing trip, really. It took us to Tahiti. From Tahiti, we came through the Panama Canal. We stayed there a day in the canal. It was one of these cargo ship passengers that carried passengers, so fortunately stayed a day here and day there. So when we left Panama, we sailed very near Cuba, and people pointed out the, the islands of Cuba, and then we went to New York and London. But we didn't realize at that time when we were sailing to, next to Cuba, what was actually happening in Cuba. It was uh, the Bay of Pigs, you know, that time. There were 
Sheikh Guevara and all those people, everything was happening. But I didn't realize what was happening there until I arrived in England. I oh, know, but you stopped in New York on the way. What was that? Yeah, like New York. We, we stayed in New York for, when you're from for, Fiji. for a day in New York. Yeah, it was lovely, amazing. Going up the Empire State Building, going up the Liberty Statue. All that is very, very exciting. So you arrived in England, the promised land where the streets are paved with gold. Um, but of course it isn't. What was it like when you arrived? What time of year was it? Fortunately, it was April. So it wasn't, so the, it wasn't too cold. It still was very cold, yeah. Now, you still have the suitcase, the very suitcase that your mum pawned her jewellery to yeah. buy you in Fiji. And you still have that in our house, yes. uh, in your home. In, in That's for sentimental reasons. I have to keep that. Yeah. I'm so pleased you kept it. But the, the suitcase itself has a brilliant story. You arrived on your, after your six-week boat journey yeah. in Southampton. Where was your suitcase? When I went to collect my suitcase, I was told they couldn't find it. So I left Southampton to London to Liverpool without a case and no change of clothing. And three months later, the boat had go around the world a couple of times before it came back to Liverpool. So you've got no money. You're living in England. What did you do for clothes? Um, wash, you know, every day, wash, shower. You're about to hit the swinging 60s in Liverpool. This must have been an incredible time to arrive there. It, it was, yeah, because people were very friendly. People of Liverpool were very, very friendly. We went to all the clubs. It was time with the Beatles. I remember asking you how you were treated, and I know there was racism, particularly after you got, or when you started to have a relationship with my mum, a local girl and also when you got married there was racism and prejudice but at one point you said that you also felt like rock stars the people in liverpool and birkenhead where we were the people gave us my friend and i had a friend with me uh, like a rock star treatment there are lots of places there people children haven't uh, seen black people or colored people whatever so sometimes Walking down the the little towns in in the country, we used to get surrounded. <laughs> <laughs> People looking at us, you know. So it was really. I'm talking about 56 years ago, not like today. Not I think, like. I think like there's probably still villages in England now that that would still. Happen. Yeah, it was a remote village in in Cheshire. And you got a job on the buses. Well, we tried to find jobs. We went to factories. This we is went you and your friend David. Wasn't yeah, it? David. I, I had met him in New Zealand, so we traveled together. And we tried to find jobs. There was no jobs at all. The only jobs was on, you know, on the buses. So I was driving a bus for five years. So I remember when I first went in for an interview for the job on the buses, the personal officer, he said, where do you know in Liverpool? Do you know Central Stations? And no. Do you know the market? No, sir. So he said, I'm afraid I can't give you a job because you don't know the area. So we were just moving out of the office when he said to hold back. And he gave us a map. He said, come back within two weeks. If you have lent the, the whole area, I'll give you a job. So we went on different buses. We walked in certain places. We learned everything. We went back after two weeks and we were employed. You're in Liverpool. It's the 60s. The Beatles are just about to kick off in a big way in Liverpool first before they yeah. go to London for the interlude in Hamburg. And um, so what was your first involvement with the music scene? I know when mum used to go to the cavern at lunchtime mm -hmm. when she was working um, in near the, the, the Docklands area. Yeah. So what was your first introduction to the Liverpool music scene? I met your mum at a gymnasium in Wallasey. I was working out and your mum came in. She was uh, about 17, I think. And she came in with her friends to, to work out. 
she was the captain of a Cheshire netball, junior netball team. So we met at this gym and then we started dating. And from there, she took me to Liverpool. She introduced me to the music scene in Liverpool because she used to work in an office not far from the cavern. So they used to go there lunchtime to listen to the Beatles play. So I was introduced to the Beatles. I remember going down the cavern, having a drink, and your mum pointed out John, Paul, Ringo. No, it wasn't Ringo. It was Pete Best that time, yeah. We didn't become friends or anything when we saw them. And the next time we saw them was in a club in Birkenhead called The Majestic. I remember going in, the Beatles coming in. They weren't even headlining. The Beatles were about third on, and then Scylla Black came on, and she was called Priscilla White. I think she sang a song, Summertime or something, yeah. It must have been a brilliant time to be in Liverpool. Yes, it was really nice. And eventually, little by little, I got into, into the music scene, yeah. Well, I know that you you and Mum made a... We've got photos, and I will share them, but you and Mum made a fantastic-looking couple. You very um, dark, obviously, and standing out. And Mum, incredibly beautiful, and wearing all these fabulous 60s miniskirts. Yeah, she was beautiful, yeah. Lovely hair. When you eventually got married, she got married in a white leather mini dress and jacket that she'd made herself. Yes. <laughs> well, it wasn't without difficulties, because, you know, there was still a lot of racism and prejudice... And even our own family, my grandfather didn't approve of the marriage, didn't go to your wedding, but you you went ahead and, and got married anyway. But mum has told me these stories about when you went to rent a somewhere to live, to find somewhere to live, she'd go and they'd say, oh yes, it's free. And when they saw you, they would say like, oh no, sorry, it's taken. Well, that's the way it was, the culture. In a small village, it was difficult. It was hard. So I should know. say you were living in Bromber on the Wirral, where mum's from. Yes, it was hard, but we worked hard. We bought our house and everything, and started everything started to fall into place. Just going back to Fiji, just about the year before you left Fiji, your dad also left, didn't he? Well, in those days, all the immigrants that came from India to Fiji the Fijian government had a scheme for one child per family to return to be repatriated to India on a free passage. So my father went. He was curious because when my when his parents left the village in India, they left cousins and whatever, their brothers and sisters, my dad's uncles and aunties. So my dad, he thought he'll go and find his roots. So when he went to the village in India, he did find some cousins and family that looked like us. They were the family, no? Yes. Yeah. And what? where was he? Do you remember? He was in Fajabad, uh, which is Uttar Pradesh. And so you're, when you're in Liverpool and on the Wirral, um, he's writing to you saying that he's going to come I had I received a letter from him, last letter in 1962. He said he was travelling, he was going back to Fiji eventually, and then his letter stopped. But I was too busy working too involved in my own whatever I was doing. So we did not even think about looking for him or searching for him. And suddenly, five years later, we discovered that he just disappeared from the face of the earth. There's no sign of him. So your dad disappeared and was never heard from again? No, never heard from him. Now, this is something that we'd like to pursue. And I know back in the 60s when you were young and we didn't have the same connectivity then or the same connections, you didn't have any money really, and your mum... You know, he's obviously just a, a lady, lovely lady living on a, a farm in, in, in Fiji. We didn't have the facilities or the wherewithal to try and trace what happened to him. But mm. I know that it's something that we've spoken about before is trying to find out what actually happened to him. What do you think happened to him? I suppose it's just pure speculation, though, isn't it? 
I have my own theory. Uh, the last time I believe he was working as a driver on a motorway through a huge forest somewhere between Faizabad. I don't know the district very well. I have my own theory, but I don't really. You feel a bit silly saying it because yeah. you think he was. A, you heard in the newspapers about people on this motorway being attacked by lions. Was it ty- lions or tigers? Uh, I saw a program once about the Chinese building railway through Africa, and many were taken by lions and tigers or whatever. And I had this theory, perhaps when my father was driving through the forest, we call it a jungle really, infested with tigers and lions or whatever. Maybe, I don't know. I think that could have been anything. India, you know, is is a quite difficult place to this day. You know, people get killed and epidemics and illnesses and disputes, let alone if you're working on something. It'd be lovely to try and find out one day, but I don't know how possible that is. But we'll we'll certainly, I think we'll have a go. I should have searched for him years ago, but now next year I'll be 80. It's a bit too late now. So we're going to fast forward a little bit because I think we've done all the big, I mean, you've traveled extensively since in the last 10 or 15 years, particularly been to Peru, India a few times, Cuba, Israel, Turkey, Mallorca. And you've managed to have a, a lovely life of travel, really. But we won't dwell on that too much because it's just sort of holidays and although they've been yeah. great experiences, they've just been lovely holidays. But one of the most significant moves for us and certainly the whole family was when we moved to Spain in 1981. Now, the Costa del Sol, Malaga, was a different place then. It was, it was a much less populated place and not so many people were moving it was a harder place to live I'd say in 1981 there were two planes there we didn't we didn't fly there to live we got the coach so you made the decision to move you and your wife you know from her village where she'd known everyone for the whole life and your almost seven-year-old daughter and your almost 10-year-old son to Spain in 1981 Uh, what was the thinking behind that? In 1968 your, your mom and I went to Mallorca for a holiday and I thought to myself, this is it, you know, I could live in Spain. So when we went back to England, from that day I planned to come and live in Spain. So it took us from 1968 to 1981 before we came to live in Spain. First of all, I came alone to have a look at schools for you and a place to live. And next minute we all came. We had to come by bus because we had a lot of luggage, five suitcases and whatever. When we arrived, it was hard. It was hard to make a living in Spain in those days. Work permit was very hard to obtain and residentship, which was very, very difficult. Plus, there was no, in Spain, as you know, there's no benefits or social security payments. Everybody have to work. Not like in England, all the documents printed in Urdu or whatever. In Spain, the language is Spanish. You have to learn fast to find a job. And this is the way we had to learn the language. Mum tells this story of me turning up to my English international school on on the first day. I was only just seven years old. And she said, so Lisa, who are you sitting next to? And I said, I'm sitting next to Neil, whose daddy is inside for kidnap and robbery with violence. And she's like, oh my God, what have we done? In those days, Spain in that part, Costa del Sol, was known as Costa del Crime because a lot of uh, criminals from the UK have absconded to Spain. They're all living there. They couldn't be extradited because there was no extradition law between Spain and England. So this is why your school was full with children from... Remember, they're all driving up in big cars and Rolls Royces and all that. They're living a life variety. But it was a magical place. 
because when you go to a new country, it was, everything was exciting. I was working, I was, I was selling timeshare. I was arrested twice for not having work permit taken to the police station. And eventually, it took me five years before I got my work permit residency. You used to have to get the boat over to Morocco every three months, didn't you? There was a loophole that in Spain, all the foreigners living in Spain, after three months, you had to get out before you were allowed to stay another three months. So all the Brits in this town in where we lived in Fuencarola, we used to get the boat from uh, Algeciras to Tangier. Over there, we stayed there till midnight, cross the border in, into North Africa, have our passport stamped. It was a loophole to give us another three months in Spain. So we used to come back on the next boat to Spain and I was all right for three years. You've uh, got a lovely, a lovely story about going over with our two good friends, family friends, who've both sadly passed away recently, but Doreen and Pete, my best <laughs> friends, Lisa, her parents, um, you've got a lovely story about getting the boat over to Morocco with them and trying to find a hotel for the night with the three of you. Well, it was just after midnight. We had our passport stamped and there was nowhere to sleep. So we knocked on a few doors and knocked on this lady. She said, come in. And next minute she saw three of us, two men, one beautiful blonde lady. No, she said. She wouldn't just bang the door on us. So we had to get away and eventually sleep close to the boat somewhere. So we had a really lovely, like you said, it was a magical place. It is a magical place, but it was a particularly magical place there. We used to, at that time, we used to drive down to the Atlantic coast to Tarifa with the sand dunes and go camping because we'd always been campers. All our holidays when we were living in the north of England were all driving down to the south of France. We had incredible holidays. And we, it was just wonderful driving up into the mountains and the lakes and a really magical childhood. So I thank you for, for taking us mm. there. I'm fast forwarding a huge amount. I'm going to bring us up to date now because I never, ever, ever thought, and I don't think you thought, and I don't think any of us thought that you would move back to England. You know, England was done mm. for you when, even though we had lovely friends and family there, when you were living on the Wirral in the north of England, it was a hard time. There were a lot of strikes. There were a lot of difficulties with work, even though you were successful. You know, it, it was a bit more challenging than life in Spain. Life in Spain has its own challenges, but it was a, a more of a beautiful and magical place to live for us. Uh, so none of us, and also you hate the cold, none of us ever, ever thought you'd be find yourself at the age of almost 80 living in London. Mm -hmm. So tell me how that happened. I know how it happened. Tell me how it happened. Well, it all happened since our first grandson was born. You you were looking for to send him to nurseries and have babysitters, and I didn't like the idea. I thought, no, your mum and I will come to London and look after them. So you phoned me up, mum phoned me up one day and said, oh, we're thinking of trying to rent a place in Greenwich, you know, somewhere near you. Mm. And within two hours, I thought, right, I'm getting, I got two hours, of, I'm online, mm. I've found you a place and you moved here. Yeah. And actually, I think to everyone's surprise is you've fallen in love with London. You really love it, don't mm. you? Well, we've fallen in love with the grandchildren, two beautiful grandchildren. But I like London as well. It's very cosmopolitan. People are friendly. I walk a lot, as you know. I'm always meeting people in the park and making new friends. I, I like London, yes. Even the weather doesn't bother me now. So I'm going to ask you my last question, which I ask, which I ask every guest on my podcast. And it's about music. And I, I can't imagine what your answer is going to be to this one, because I know you love music. And my brother, Marcus, is a musician, so you're a big fan of his music as well. He lives in Los Angeles. But if you had to pick one song that reminds you of your travels or your history in Fiji or a really special time or a memorable time somewhere related to travel, what would that song be? My favourite song of all time has to be <laughs> Tom Jones, Green Green. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. 
Nobody's ever made me cry over Tom Jones before, I have to admit. Um, well, there's several songs that I really love. Green, Green Grass of Home, yeah, reminds me of Fiji and all my travels and everything. And Roy Orbison's Blue Bayou, that's when we were young, we used to go to the clubs and listen to all this music. So it has to be Green, Green Grass of Home and Blue Bayou. And Mum and I are going to see Tom Jones soon, so we'll, uh, we'll think of you because you're not coming with us, <laughs> you'll be down the road. I want to add a song that I'm going to play. We can't afford to play music on the podcast yeah. because you have to pay for it, so I never play the songs at the moment. But I'm going to play a song on this one because I think it's a traditional song, therefore nobody is specifically recording yeah. it. It's called, it's the Fijian Farewell Song. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the Fijian Farewell Song. And it just evokes memories of Fiji and just beautiful things, really. So let's listen. Looks like this version is by The Seekers. <laughs> I'll play the whole version. I never had, no, didn't know the Seekers did it. Remembering Suba, I said. You have to get the translation for that. Yes, I will. So it's a lovely song, and it's the Fijians, the indigenous mm. Fijians, not your Indian yes. Fijians. They sing it when anyone leaves. They harmonise so well. Well, thank you, Dad. That was lovely, and I think that's a lovely thing to be able to keep and show the my children and your grandchildren. And uh, thank you very much for being the person that made me cry <laughs> more than any other interview he has ever done. <laughs> well, family interviews are very emotional, so this is why I was very emotional as well. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you. Daddy. Thank you so much, Dad. I really enjoyed that episode and I hope you did too. I know it's out of the ordinary, but Dad tells a wonderful story and it's a lovely record to have, not only for us as a family, but of Fiji, of the Indian Fijian story, of the story of indentured labour and a time that has now gone by. I know how lucky my brother Marcus and I have been to have a dad like Dad and I'd like to thank you, Dad and Mum, for all you do for us. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. 